First Peter 5, chapter 5, verse 8. We're in the middle of a series called uh, Roadkill, Learning from Roadkill. We're talking about animals that, uh, popular animals that are, not, they're not popular animals, animals, the 10 most popular animals as far as roadkill goes. Looking at them, kind of examining their, their characteristics, their qualities, seeing a fatal flaw in them, and then making a spiritual application. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says, Be sober, be alert, your adversary the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone to devour. Now, we started this particular message last week. If you remember, if you were here, or if you watched us on Facebook, welcome to those who are watching us on Facebook Live, by the way. <laughs> and we started last week, and we're talking about the deer. And the fatal flaw we're talking about with the deer is dysfunction. We're talking about the dysfunctional deer. Remember last week I said the deer, it's a beautiful animal, right? We all, everybody loves to stop and look at, at deer. If you see a deer driving down the road, you know, my, my, my two youngest boys, uh, if we're driving down the road and we're going, especially out through Enfield by the prison, I think, I think deer, we see a lot of deer in Turkey. Anybody that drives by the Summers and Enfield prisons, see a lot of deer in Turkey, they're very safe there. <laughs> Nobody's going to... Okay, thought that was going to be funnier than it was, too. They're, nobody's going to hunt them outside of a prison, right? So they just kind of roam. And, and my sons look out the window and they're like, deer! And we all yell and scream when we see deer. Deer are very majestic. They're beautiful animals. We love to watch them run. They're fast. They've got all these great qualities, yet deer make, uh, make the list of uh, top 10 animals that are killed on the road. I'm not going to go through the whole list because we're going to finish this message today. But I just want to give you a little background of some deer facts and why deer, why the, the, the fatal flaw I find in a deer is its dysfunction. Deer are hypervigilant. They have a heightened sense of smell to avoid danger. So they're hypervigilant. They have these great abilities that have been given to them by God to avoid danger. Deer are nomads. They travel in herds, so they have a great amount of protection around them. They have other other deer to learn from. The young ones have the older ones to learn from. Deer can run up to 40 miles an hour. They can swim up to 13 miles an hour. They're most active at night. They have excellent night vision. So they have all these great abilities and all these great qualities, all these great gifts that God has given to them, yet deer get hit on the road quite often, so much so that they're in many states, they're the number one animal to be run over on the road. And the problem is, that deer, when they get onto a road and they see an oncoming vehicle, they look at it, and because their eyes have more cones than rods, the light floods their eyes and it blinds them and the deer stop in the middle of the road. It's not because they're fearful, it's because they're blinded and they get hit. That's, to me, what makes the deer dysfunctional. Its dysfunction is its fatal flaw. Its dysfunction makes it common. Think about that. It's dysfunction of being blinded, of looking, of, of being on a road where it doesn't need to be, where it shouldn't be, where it could cross quickly. In fact, some deer can jump 30 feet. They could almost jump across an entire road. Yet, when they're on the road, they look and they get blinded by the light, and they're, all of a sudden, everything they have, every gift they have is gone, and they are now dysfunctional. As I said last week, lots of Christians are dysfunctional too, aren't we? We have a lot of dysfunctional Christians. We have a lot of dysfunction in Christianity. I gave you a bunch of statistics, and I'm not going to read them all, but uh, I will read a couple of them to remind you. 44% of Americans say they believe the Bible is ambiguous on its teaching on abortion. 
I'm telling you, that's, ambi- that, that's, that's, uh, that's dysfunctional. <laughs> the Bible isn't ambiguous on its teaching on abortion. 59 to 64% of 18 to 29 year olds who grew up in the church have withdrawn from church involvement as an adult and they're no longer active in church. Also said that overall 42% of all millennials, that's 38 years old and under, have dropped out of church, or I'm sorry, 52% have dropped out of church, 48% are all that's left attending church. And the reasons they gave, uh, or what I would call excuses they gave, I want to find a way to follow Jesus that connects, the world, connects with the world I live in. I want uh, God is more at work outside the church than inside the church. Let me tell you something. Feeding the poor is not God's work, is not God working outside the church. That's not God working outside the church. Civil rights, standing up for human rights, that's not God working outside the church. God working outside the church, God, God does not work outside the church. God works through his church. The work of God is reaching people with the love and grace and mercy and the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What that does through his children is cause us to show kindness and love and compassion to others. Okay? So make sure you understand, many Christians get involved in things outside the church thinking they're doing their Christian duty. Once you look at it as Christian duty, now you're looking at it in a dysfunctional way. But God does not work outside the church more than he works inside the church. The church is his vehicle to reach the world. And then, then the, if you remember, those of you who were here last week or watched last week, we brought it down to the third excuse of that age group, and this brings it home. They said, I want to be a Christian without separating myself from the world around me. And that brings it home. That's the bottom line. The Bible says, come out from among them and be separate. The Bible says to be in the world, but not of the world. The Bible says not to get yourself, uh, get yourself unclean in the world, keep yourself unspotted from the sin and stain of the world. That doesn't mean we don't have something to do in the world. That doesn't mean we don't have relationships in the world. But what that does mean is that we don't get ourselves involved with the sin of the world just to reach people. Also said that only 52% of born-again Christians said they shared their faith with someone in the last year. And 54% of white evangelicals said that America becoming a non-white majority nation will have a negative impact on the country, while 80% of blacks and Latinos believe it will be a positive. If, in case you didn't know, 54% of white evangelicals have expressed a racist attitude <laughs> when they say that. Okay? When you say it's, not go- it's, it's going to have a negative impact on the country when there's more brown and black people than there are white people, that's, that's, uh, that's racist and dysfunctional. We've become dysfunctional for a few reasons that I gave to you, and this is all review. The reasons I gave last week, number one was we neglect our walk. We neglect our walk. We do. We neglect our walk. Less than... Uh, only 39% of all Americans who identify as being born-again Christians believe the Bible is the literal word of God. The li- we, less than half of all evangelical Christians believe the Bible is the literal word of God. And we said last, night, that last week, that may not seem like a big deal on its face to you, but let me tell you what that means. That undermines the foundation of your faith. When you say the Bible, isn't the, the Bible isn't the literal word of God, that it's subject to personal interpretation, now you're saying that only certain parts of the Bible apply to you. 
and only certain parts of the Bible apply to others. Therefore, other parts of the Bible aren't applicable to your life. Now you're saying that the Bible cannot be taken in total, and now you're saying that the Bible cannot be trusted. See, that's the problem. If that's where you fall, that you don't believe the Bible is the literal word of God, then you need to do some Bible study. And I'd love to sit down with you if you go to New Life <laughs> or if you watch us on Facebook. I'd love to, to have a conversation with you about that. Because if you do not believe the Bible is the literal word of God, word for word, front to back, cover to cover, then your faith is not sitting on a firm foundation. If one part is wrong, then all parts are wrong. If you can only, if, if, if you can take what you want and leave what you don't want, then so can anybody else. What is that, where, where, does that, where does that leave people that say, well, I don't believe Jesus dying on the cross and paying the price for my sins is the only way to heaven. I believe that all roads lead to heaven. It's better to find out that all roads don't lead to heaven in this life than it is in the next life. You know what I'm saying? Because contrary to what is written in Love Wins. Once you, once you go to hell for eternity, you're there for eternity. So it's better to find out that Jesus Christ is the one who died and paid the price for your sins and rose to give you victory over hell, death, and the grave in this life so that you can make a decision about him now than later on. Second thing we said, the reason we're dysfunctional is because we dare Satan. We want to ride the line, man. We want to ride that line. I used a couple illustrations. The workplace, right? The workplace where, where we ride over that line of, of uh, relationships with the opposite sex. And ah, it's okay. Flirting in the workplace is okay. No, it's not. I would challenge you to ask your spouse if they think that it's okay for you to flirt with someone of the opposite sex in the workplace. And I'll, I told you my feelings on it. I'd be in jail right now. <laughs> Just saying. All right. <laughs> but we dare Satan. We dare Satan. Some of, us have, some of us have issues with certain things in our life. Some of us have issues, and I use my, my own personal, because I don't want to any, put anybody else out there, but I use my own personal illustration of, of uh, Oreo cookies and... You can't eat just one, right? You eat one, you, you're going to demolish the whole pack. Some of you, you're like that, you know, you're like that guy in a movie. And they, Listen, can we just say two, two things about life? The internet lies and movies don't tell the truth, okay? So if, you're, if you've got a problem with alcohol and you think you're going to dare yourself to buy a bottle of alcohol and sit it on the table and stare at it and say, I'm going to beat this thing, you're a fool. You're a fool. Because you're not going, you're daring Satan. And when you're daring Satan in your own power, guess who's going to win? Satan, not you. You are not powerful enough to beat him on your own. We're going to talk about that. The third thing we said was we're dysfunctional because we separate ourselves from our herd and our protection. We don't think we need church. Remember I said you need church as much as church needs you. If you didn't need church, Jesus wouldn't have said you did, you, that you needed church. If you didn't need church, Paul wouldn't, and Peter and John wouldn't have written about how important church is in our lives. If you didn't need church, if you don't need church in your life, then the Bible wouldn't say you need church in your life. The fourth thing we said is because we compare, we're dysfunctional because we compare ourselves to other Christians. You are not me, I'm not you. You are you. God created you to be you. You need to be uniquely you for the kingdom of God. 
be who God has created you to be, who God has called you to be. And the last reason that I gave that we were dysfunctional is because we ignore grace. We don't go to God and say, God, please forgive me for my sins. We ignore grace. We begin to accept our sin and refuse to ask for forgiveness. And that allows sin to build up in our lives. And that allows, uh, that allows the, the wedge between us and God to go deeper and deeper and the gap between us and God to grow and grow and grow farther and farther apart until we get to a point where we truly do believe we don't need God and we can live on our own. And I said, I closed out by saying, that's the bad news. That's the bad news. How do we turn the tide? And that's what today's message is about. How do we turn the tide in our lives? How do we turn the tide on dysfunction in our lives, in our church, and in the church, the universal church? How do we turn the tide and get things back to where they should be? Listen, let me be honest with you, and I think everybody would agree with us. Most of us don't want to be like this. Most Christians don't want to be dysfunctional, correct? Most Christians, Christians want, to be want to be functional, we want to live above temptation. We want to live above struggles. We want to live above problems. We want to live above apathy. We want to live above, uh, above neglecting our Bible and our prayer life. We want to be the witness that God has called us to be. But it's difficult. Nobody's saying it's easy. Nobody's saying it's a simple plan. Nobody's saying it's, it's uh, you know, take one step, one step, two steps, three, boom, everything is wonderful and fine. It's, a, it's work, it's a chore, it's difficult. Not because God's, God's uh, direction to us and the principles of the Bible are, are uh, overbearing, but because we have an enemy that's fighting against us constantly, just constantly beating on us, trying to wear us down. <clears throat> so what do we do to turn the tide? Romans 7, 15 through 20 tells us gives us backup saying, it's not, it, it's not our desire to live dysfunctionally. Paul writes, for I do not understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. That sounds, so, that, that sounds like so much back, back channel, switchback, doublespeak, doesn't it? Yet every one of us who, who reads that, even though... It's tough to follow if you read it quickly, knows exactly what Paul is saying. I want to live right. I want to be an example of faith and godliness. I want to be a Christian in the full sense of the word of God, a Christian. Yet, I have struggles within myself. I have personality traits and I have conflicts and I have other people beating on me throughout my life. What that is is Satan throwing obstacles in our way to get us to fall, to get us to struggle, to get us to work harder than we have to when it comes to simply doing the right thing. So we want to do what's right, but we don't always do what's right. And if we don't do what's right enough, 
then pretty soon the wrong things take priority and precedent in our lives, and we become dysfunctional Christians trying to live for God without the power of God in our lives. We become like what Jesus said to the Pharisees, whited tombs that are beautiful on the outside but dead on the inside. That's what we want to avoid. Why? Because what's dead on the inside, I'll tell you what, how many of you have, have driven past the, the parsonage, the big brick house up here, and you've seen the tree that was cut down in the front yard. Have you seen that? I grew up, that tree was gorgeous. That was a Japanese maple tree. And I'll tell you what, in, in, the, in, in the late fall or uh, any time there was like a, a, a light ice storm, that tree would be covered in ice if, it still, if the leaves were still on it. And when the sun came down and shone on that thing, it was unbelievable. It was beautiful. The leaves on that tree were gorgeous. But something happened. From the inside out, that tree started to die. So it, whether it got a disease or, or something, that tree started to die. And it started taking over one part of the tree. And I cut that off. Then it started taking over another part of the tree. And I cut that off. And I kept cutting limbs and limbs and limbs off as parts of the tree died. And it got to the point now, while Zach and Tiffany live up there, the tree was just dead, and there was just one spot of the tree that was living, and the tree was no longer any good. It looked, it, it looked bad. It was dead. It was dangerous. Branches, big branches were falling. So the tree had to be cut down. And that's a perfect picture, I think, of what happens to us as believers when we start to neglect things in our life, the, 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 per, the important things of God in our lives, the important qualities and, and, the, and the commands of God, and the, uh, we forget and we, be, we neglect to apply the principles of God to our lives, we start to die inside. And from the inside out, we start to die spiritually. We start to neglect reading our Bible. We start to neglect prayer. We start to neglect uh, having friends that are godly friends. We start to listen to gossip. We start to cause trouble. We start to become, uh, uh, we, we start to become negative with other people. We start to become critical. And slowly, our spiritual walk starts to die. We don't lose our salvation. The Bible says we're saved eternally. But where our spiritual walk starts to die. And slowly but surely, parts strong, what were once strong, beautiful parts of our walk with Jesus Christ start to fall away. And pretty soon before you know it, Going to church isn't important anymore. Pretty soon, before you know it, not only do you not go to church, but you don't watch on Facebook anymore. Pretty soon, before you know it, Sunday is just another day of the week. And you start planning your tailgate party Saturday night for Sunday morning so that you can watch football on Sunday rather than come and worship God. That's how it happens. That's called being dysfunctional. So how do we... Turn the tide. What can we do in our lives as followers of Christ to get ourselves back to where we need to be? The first thing is this. We must repent, return, and be reconciled. That's what we don't want to do, right? People don't want to, pastors don't preach on sin anymore. We don't call people, not, not that I need to go to people and call out sin, but we don't call people out on sin. We don't call sin out in the world or in our church. We become neglectful of all that is truly important. We start to put, we, we start to want to be relevant more than we do be right with God. And relevance and being accepted by, listen to this man, we want to be accepted by the world out there. 
rather than Jesus being accepted by the world out there. What did Jesus say about the way the world sees him? He says, marvel, don't marvel if the world hates you. It hated me first. Look around. Take a poll. <laughs> we're, all, we're all filled with polls right now, aren't we? Take a poll. How many people out there, how many people in the world really think Jesus is the way to go? How many people really think walking in the way that the Bible says to walk is the way to go? It's not popular. It's not popular, and people aren't just going to be rushing the door saying, hey, sign me up. Why? Because in order to become a born-again Christian, you must admit that you're a sinner first. Well, what's happened now in the church is that we have become so tolerant. Yes, I use that word tolerant. We become so tolerant of sin in society that we're becoming tolerant of sin in the church. And we no longer tell people you're in sin. Oh, you're just having a personal struggle. Oh, you just, you, you just need to rise above this. No, man. You need to deal with the sin in your life. That's exactly what you need to do. Admit that you have sin in your life, confess that to God, repent, and come back to him. Oh, that's, that's so judgmental. Absolutely. <laughs> Call me judgmental. That's what the Bible says. Remember what we said in last week? You can't play the sin game and win, folks. You can't do it. There's got to come a point in time in your life where you say, you know what, enough is enough. I'm tired, of, I'm tired of riding the fence. I'm tired of living over on this side of the wall. I'm tired of being in sin. And sometimes what that means is you've got to say, I'm tired of hanging out with people that bring me down spiritually. I will desperately do my best to live Christ in front of them. But quite honestly, if I'm with them all the time, I'm not living Jesus in front of them. I'm living the world in front of them. They're having more of an influence on me than I am on them. And that includes Christians sometimes. Listen, Christian, if you're trying to follow Jesus Christ and all you do is surround yourself with people who are, with Christians who are negative, with Christians who just do nothing but criticize church and God and the Bible, and all they want to do is get you to come over to their side of, of, uh, of worldliness, guess what? Those people need to stop being an influence in your life because they're bringing you down. And you need to confess that sin because the Bible says surround yourself with godly people. If we walk with the wise, we'll be wise. That's what the Bible says. But we don't want to do that anymore as Christians. Why? Because then we have to admit we're wrong. One of the greatest things you can do, one of the, one of the biggest favors you can do for yourself, Christian, is admit that you're wrong. Admit you're wrong. Hey, parents, one of, the be one of the best things you can do for yourself and your relationship with your children is say, you know what? I'm wrong. I was wrong. <laughs> My two nine-year-old son, Aaron and I, our two nine-year-old boys are in here. And you can ask them. I've had to go to them and say, Gabriel, I'm sorry. Michael, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Why? Because I want my sons to know how to apologize I want my sons to know how to take responsibility in their lives. Some of us as Christians need to start learning how to take responsibility for the sin in our lives. Some of us walk into a situation and we drop a hand grenade and run away. We create the chaos, but we don't want to take responsibility for it. 
Listen, if you want to get yourself right with God, if you want to get yourself back to functionality, you'll take responsibility for your sin. Ah, but you don't understand. I'm going to have to admit I'm wrong. Ding, 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 ding. What do we have for our winner today, Gene? Exactly. Exactly. It's not fun. Sometimes it, you can think it's humiliating, but it's not humiliating. It's humility. There's a big difference. It doesn't matter what other people think. It matters what it does for your relationship with God. Express that humility and say, I was wrong. God, I was wrong. Repent of your sin. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins or repent of our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. The word confess means to name it. God knows what you did. He wants you to realize what you did. God, I'm so sorry I did what I did. I'm so sorry I, I, I stepped out that way. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. It's that simple. And that begins the restoration process. We must repent, return, and then be reconciled. See, we want to reconcile people without repentance. And what that does, when we reconcile people without repentance, it still allows that dysfunction to be there. The Bible says a church or a life or a family cannot be functional for Jesus Christ as long as it has dysfunction. You cannot function functionally in dysfunction. Does that make any sense? You cannot function functionally with dysfunction. You just can't do it. The only way to get rid of that dysfunction in the life of a believer in a, or in a church is to confess sin and repent and, and return to Jesus Christ. Then you can be reconciled. Then you can be reconciled. Listen, nobody is more important than reconciliation. Nobody is above the need for repentance. Arrogance makes us think we're okay and more important than God's plan. Very simple. Arrogance thinks, makes us think we're okay and makes us think we're more important than God's plan. God's plan is for us to keep short accounts. God's plan is for us to go to him and repent and get our hearts right with him and then be reconciled with him together. Remember the story of the prodigal son? The prodigal son, the father didn't go chase after him. What had to happen? The son had to return to the father, had to humble himself and return to the father. And then the father welcomed him back, and there was reconciliation. Problem is that we've walked away from what works. We've walked away in church and in our lives. We've walked away from what works. In church, we want to entertain. We want to draw a crowd. Drawing a crowd is great if you're going to draw a crowd for the right reasons in the right way. But we have tried to draw a crowd by entertaining people. Rather than bringing them in to preach them the word, we just think it's awesome to have a huge congregation. I'll tell you what, you can have a, you can have a, huge, a huge body of water that's an inch deep. It's shallow. We, we don't need a huge congregation that's an inch deep. We need a congregation. We need people. We need Christians whose roots go down deep in the word of God, whose roots reach down and, and grab that moisture, whose roots are connected 
to the, 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 the trunk of the tree, which is Jesus Christ, who are fed constantly. And don't die like the tree in the front yard. But grow, like the Bible says, stand strong like a tree planted by the rivers of water, and it brings forth fruit in its season. Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Jesus tells us what this is like. He says, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Listen, you can say, Pastor John, you've been so judgmental and so angry this morning, and you're attacking so much. I'm not doing it. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Here Jesus said, you have fallen far from where you're supposed to be. So far that you can't even see where you were before. Listen, I believe that's where the church in America is right now. I pray for not just our church, but churches in our area, churches in our state, our region, and throughout our entire country. Because we have lost our way. And I'll say it, we have lost our way. When we're more concerned about the results of an election than the results of a sermon, we've lost our way. I'm telling you, folks, we are so afraid of what's going to happen on November 3rd that we're panicking and we're dividing. Do you not realize? Let me just say this, Christian, because the average evangelical is Republican. I'm, I'm not beating on anybody. But do you not realize that you're driving people away from Jesus Christ by pushing your political agenda on them? I don't care who you support. Man, so vote for the mole out on the golf course. I don't care who you vote for. What I care about is if you tell people, and Democrats, you're doing the same thing. You're doing the same thing. You know what Democrats do? You know what, they, you know what you're doing when you, when you justify everything? You're telling people they don't need Jesus. When you're telling people that, that we don't love everybody and people of color don't matter, you're telling, the thing, you're telling them the things that Jesus don't matter. In other words, if you take a political stand and that's how you're identified by pe to people, you're pushing them away from Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't tell you to take a political stand. He told you to stand as a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what he told you to do. And we're losing our way. Jesus says in Revelation, repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Why is the church why is the church losing power in America today? Because we refuse to repent. That's why. Because we refuse to repent. We refuse to admit that we've lost our way. We refuse to admit that we're going down the wrong path. Do you think it's an accident that we lost one-third of the church as soon as this pandemic hit and the government said we had to shut down? Do you think that's an accident? Do you think that's just a coincidence? It's not a coincidence. We've been putting, we, we've been putting this, infra, we've been destroying the infrastructure of the church for decades. And now that people had an excuse, they took it. That's exactly what has happened. We gave people an excuse not to go to church, and they took it, and now they're running with it. And most of them, folks, aren't coming back. Churches are shutting down right now. Pastors are saying, I don't want to do this anymore. Do you realize that? You know how many people I've talked to whose pastors have said, sorry, we're not doing this anymore? Where have we come to, man? What, what's going on? What's going on? We've forgotten where we came from. We've forgotten the first works. 
Jesus said, repent and do the first works. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, And my people who hear my name, and we, we apply here, we, here once again as American Christians, we misapply this scripture so much. We say that if America will bow its knees to God, are you out of your mind? America, bow its knees to God? We, we vote immorality in every four years. Every six years, we vote immorality in. Every two years, we vote immorality in. America is going to bow its knees to God? No. Jesus said, or the, God says here in 2 Chronicles, if my people, not my country, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Jesus says, restoration begins in the church. Restoration in the church begins in your life. If you will admit your sin and go to God and fall in front of him and say, God, I am so sorry, I was wrong. Please restore me. The Bible says he will heal your life. And then things will begin to turn around and we will get back and we'll start doing the first works. What are the first works? We'll start reading our Bible again. We'll start praying again. We'll start going to church again. Jesus Christ and his plan for our lives will become our priority again. That's the first works. So that's the first thing. Repent, return, and be reconciled. The second thing we have to do, folks, is learn to fight for our lives. We've got to learn to fight for our lives. You know one of the saddest things? Uh, Gabriel and Michael, if you, if you haven't noticed, Gabriel and Michael are brown. And I've been talking to uh, men of color how to raise, how, how, my, how I can be a good father in this world with raising two young, young boys of color teaching them what they need to know and how to, how to help them see the world in a way that I don't see it. I'm, I'm, not sure you, I'm not sure you notice, I'm white. I was supposed to be funny, but I guess it didn't come across that way. Supposed to be ironic humor, but it wasn't. Okay, so we'll just move on. <laughs> and you know, I've gotten some great advice. I've gotten some great advice and some great principles to put in, and many of you, many of you gentlemen here I've talked to, and you've given me some great advice. You know one universal theme that has come back to me about how to raise my boys? You gotta teach them how to defend themselves. You, gotta, you just have to teach them how to defend themselves because there's always gonna be that knucklehead. There's always gonna be that, that big mouth. There's always gonna be that person that, that comes up to them and is a, is a racist bigot who wants to be nasty and ugly. And you're going to have to teach them how. And they're going to push it. Not that your boys have to turn around and pop them in the mouth, but that racist bigot is going to be actionable on his hate. Am I right? He's going to be actionable on his hate. And he's going to take some steps, and your boys are going to have to learn how to defend themselves. And while that hurts my heart as a father, that also emboldens me as a Christian to realize if I'm going to raise Christians who know how to stand for Jesus Christ, 
and live in this world, they're going to have to learn how to fight. Christians, you need to learn how to defend yourself. That's the second step. If you want to be functional, not only you must you repent, return, and be reconciled, but you must learn how to fight for your life. Why? Because Satan is attacking over and over and over again. He's looking for a weakness. When you think you can take a day off of your spiritual walk, he's taking advantage of your day off. He doesn't take a day off. He doesn't take an hour off. He attacks you in your dreams. He attacks you every way he possibly can. He's like the velociraptors in Jurassic Park, right? He tests those electric fences to find a weakness. And he's going to try and find your weakness. He's going to keep attacking and keep attacking and keep attacking. You may be strong here, but you may be weak here. And that's where he's going to attack. And what does the Bible say? Build up the defenses in your life. Tear down strongholds, which we think are strong, but they make us weak. And allow God to be your strong tower. That's what it says. Tear down your weakness and live in his strength. Even in your weakness, you are strong, right? You say, well, well how, what is a practical way to look at that, Pastor John? You know what I do? I pray, God, please, help me to not abuse food today. I swear to you, I pray that way. God, please, help me not to abuse food today. Why? Because food is a downfall in my life. Food causes me to be unhealthy, the way I use it, causes me to be unhealthy. It causes me, it causes me not to like myself because I'm overweight. And food causes me to have a sense of self-agony uh, self because I don't have control of myself. And I can't, I, I, I can't master it. So I feel bad about myself. Is that the way God wants me to be? Not at all. He created me. He loves me. He wants me to love myself. He wants me to have a positive opinion of myself because I'm a child of God. Because he loved me enough to die for me. Therefore, he says, John, bring your burdens to me and lay them down at the cross. Tell me how you feel so I can say to you, I've got it covered. When you're weak, I'll be strong for you. Ladies, some of you, feel that way, don't you? Because you've been told all your lives that you're worthless, that you're only good for one thing, that you're not pretty, that you're not smart. One thing I don't understand, this isn't a political statement, this is an honest observation, I don't understand why women are giving this nominee to the Supreme Court such a hard time. She's brilliant. I would celebrate her in this country Women, women are crying for equal rights, and here's a woman rising to the highest level of her profession, making men look stupid. <laughs> she made some of those senators look like fools. And I loved when she held up that notepad and it was blank. I'm answering your questions without having to look at notes. Yet, you're attacking a woman because you don't agree with her. Aren't you just doing what's been done to you all your lives? Say you don't have to agree with people, but celebrate the fact that people are who they are. Celebrate the fact that God created you in his image. And what's that old, what's that old saying? God don't make no junk, right? Agree with God that you have value. 
Agree with God that you have purpose. And when you do that, man, things start to change in your life. Learn how to fight for your life. Listen, we fight more for our rights as Americans than we do for our spiritual lives and health. There's more at stake as a citizen of heaven than there is as a citizen of America. 2 Timothy 2.4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, finally, bro, my, finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Did you, do you realize what that says? We usually apply that outwardly, right? My struggle is not against people. You know what these, your struggle is not against as well? Your struggle is not against yourself. You are flesh and blood. Yet we defeat ourselves so many times. Your struggle isn't against yourself. Your struggle is against Satan, and he's going to take advantage of every weakness you have. And if you don't learn how to fight for your life, you're going to get defeated, and you're going to live in defeat. And you're going, to be, you're going to end up walking away. I'm telling you, folks, if you're watching on Facebook and you're in this place, you've got to learn how to fight for your life. And sometimes that means setting an alarm, getting up early, and getting to church even when you don't feel like it. Because this is where you need to be. Ask anybody who's been faithful to church or has started coming back to church during this pandemic and ask them how they feel about being in church. And I'll tell you to a person... They feel better about their walk with the Lord because they're here. Sometimes you have to fight against the flesh and say, I need to be where God wants me to be. And I love, I love how the, the, um, the CSB is the version I use most of the time. Verse 12, it says, we don't, we, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities. Check this out, man, Drew, I love this. It says, against the cosmic powers of darkness. I love that. I love the way the Bible, the, the CSB translates it. We fight against the cosmic powers of darkness. Does that not tell you how powerful our enemy is? The cosmic powers of darkness, man. He wants to defeat you. He wants to annihilate you. He wants to tear you down and leave you in the dust. You need to stand. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6 says, Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds, we demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ, and we are ready to punish any disobedience once your obedience is complete. Paul says, I take action. I take action in my life, and I stand up, and I fight for my life. I tear down strongholds in my life. I, I throw myself against them. I come against them with the prayers of God, with the power of God that I, that I call down from heaven through prayer. I stand against it. I tear down those strongholds, those lies that have been told to me all my life those things that I've believed, those things that I've accepted, what the, world has got, has, what the world has infiltrated my life with, I tear that down. And I allow God to build strongholds within me that can help me keep it out now. Third thing we have to do is use the Bible for transformation, not information. Use the Bible for transformation, 
not information. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, uh, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You learn so that you can grow. You don't learn to win arguments. We don't learn about the Bible just so we can win an argument, just so we can look smart on Facebook. We learn the Bible so we can grow. We learn the Bible so we can apply it to our lives and become stronger so that we can live a life that honors Jesus Christ and shows people a better way. Isn't that what Paul wrote in First the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 before we get into 1 Corinthians 13, which is the chapter about love? He says, and yet I show you a better way. And then he gives us 1 Corinthians 13, which tells us all about the power of love. That's what we should do. We should apply the Bible or appropriate the Bible to our lives so that we can show people a better way. Accept the entire Bible, not just the parts that you like. There's one interpretation, there's, there's one interpretation, many applications. There's one truth, but many different ways to apply it. The way some of you, the way younger people apply it is different than the way older people apply it because our lives are different. We face different struggles. We face different, we face different challenges in life. It's just, the, it's just the way it is. But that doesn't mean the Bible changes its interpretation. The application is just different. It's kind of like medication. Anybody here allergic to some kind of medication? I, I've, I've had nine surgeries in my life. So after nine surgeries, you learn that there's certain things that don't work for you. And there, there's certain kinds of, of uh, medication, especially the, the um, anesthesia. I've told, oh my goodness, every time I go in for surgery, I tell the anesthesiologist, they say, do you have any problems with, with uh, anesthesia? Yes, I do. I throw up every time. After surgery, I throw up. I don't care when they, when they put my hand back together after I crush under forklift, that's sick. Knee surgery, when they, when, they replaced, when they did my first knee surgery, got sick. When they did my second knee surgery, told them I get sick, I got sick. When they replaced my knee, I said, listen, I throw up. Okay, well, we'll give you something for it. Thank you. Some of you, you may have had surgery and never gotten sick from it. Anesthesia gets me sick. It may not to you. It is, it's applied in different ways, and there's different results. It's the same thing with the Word of God in our lives. It's applied in different ways in different situations, and sometimes it brings about a different result for each and every one of us because we need different results. We need a different way to see things. We need to be able to get through different situations. But the Bible, in its many different applications, can help each and every one of us survive life. Take it literally. Most people don't, most Christians don't take the Bible literally and ask yourself, how's that working for them? The Bible is your life coach. The Bible is your owner's manual. Treat it that way. The fourth thing we must do is take up your cross. Take up your cross. Get busy serving God and serving in your church. Get even, even now, even during this pandemic, get busy serving God and serving in your church. There's something you can do 
The more we get involved, the more we can do. You talk to Jeremy, our deacon over um, building maintenance and stuff. Ask Jeremy if there's something you can do to help uh, get things done. Jeremy, we got a building that was built by Adam, for crying out loud, right? There's some issues, right? We can have, we, can, we, we got some things that can be done. Andy Zander asked, what can I do? Andy would come over and ride that lawnmower and mow the lawn. Well, that's serving God. Of course it's serving God. Do you like a mowed lawn? It's serving God. Listen, service for God through the church with a pure heart is service for the kingdom of God. That's just the way it is. And we've got to get that understanding. You don't have to be a pastor to be serving God. You have to be using the gifts and talents and abilities and the passions that God has placed within you to build his kingdom, to reach people, to show them his love. Get busy. Take up your cross. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When was the last time you lived your life by faith? When was the last time you said, God, lead me today because I don't know where to go? When was the last time you leaned on a brother or sister in Christ and said, listen, I'm weak. Can you be strong? I've got no strength or energy. What do I do? It's like the little kid who gets a brand new toy. I mean, how many parents, Christmas Day, right? You open the presents at, oh my goodness, 30 in the morning. And by noontime, your child is walking up to you and saying, Mommy or Daddy, can you fix this? Right? Because they broke what you spent all that time and all that effort and all that money to buy them. Man, that's what we need to be like with Jesus. We go to him and we say, can you fix this? This life that I've broken? This life that I've dragged through the mud, this life that I've ignored, can you fix this? You know what, he will. Keep your eyes wide open and focused on Jesus. And remember, it's about Jesus. Because he says in John 12, 32, as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to me. And the last thing I think we need to do, well, not the last thing, but the last thing in this message that I believe we need to do, and listen, <laughs> I don't need to give you permission, but I'm going to go ahead and give you permission to celebrate your progress. Celebrate your progress. Celebrate it. Our sons turned nine in June. We celebrated, right? So many of you drove by and beeped the horns and you had signs that you held out and and uh, it was awesome. It was awesome. The way we celebrate birthdays during a pandemic. It was great. The fire department came. Remember, boys? The fire department came by. The police came by, and lights were flashing, and sirens were going off. It was amazing. It was cool. I mean, we need to celebrate our progress as followers of Jesus. I lived one day without falling into fill-in-the-blank. I made it. I put my head on the pillow tonight, a 
a success. Ha! Huh. You want me to celebrate one day? Absolutely, I want you to celebrate one day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Celebrate that one day. And then the next day, celebrate again. And then celebrate again. I read my Bible this morning. Whoa, yeah. Let's have a party, reward myself with a donut. No, don't do that. <clears throat> Stop beating yourself up for your failure and your shortcomings. Stop being critical of others. Rejoice in the Lord and in the grace of God. Celebrate. Hey, New Life, can I tell you something? We need to celebrate our church. We need to celebrate New Life Church. You know why? Because we're moving forward in this tough time. Because many of our people are standing strong and standing firm. Do you think it's easy for this worship team to make the sacrifices that it does to be up here? Hey, they're here for two services. You think it's easy for the group that's sitting back that you can't see on, on Facebook, sitting back there in the, in the sound booth, taking care of all that stuff, so that literally hundreds, if not thousands of people can hear the word? Do you think it's easy for them to get up? Listen, I, can, I get to sleep in until 7.30 on a Sunday morning. You guys get to sleep in until 7.30 on a Sunday morning? How about you, worship team? You sleeping until 7.30 on a Sunday morning? I feel guilty now. <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, I don't because I got to stay up and... Yeah, no, just kidding. We need to celebrate the fact that we have people committed to serving God here and that this church is continuing to move forward during a very difficult time when many churches are shutting their doors. We need to celebrate the fact that there are still people giving financially to support this ministry so we can continue to move forward during this time. And that should encourage you to continue to celebrate your own progress. It's not tooting your own horn. It's celebrating the grace of God and the power of God in your life. Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14 say, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Paul says it's a worthy goal to follow, man. It's a worthy goal to follow. I continue to move forward. I celebrate the progress. I celebrate the fact that I've left the dysfunction behind. And now I'm moving forward, a functional, powerful Christian, doing great things for God. I celebrate that fact. Why? Because it is to be celebrated. It's a big deal. It's a big deal that you're faithful to God. It's a big deal that you see yourself as precious in his eyes. It's a big deal that you want to live a life that honors him. You need to celebrate that. And you know what? Husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, you need to celebrate the progress of the other people in your life as well. You need to celebrate it. Listen, I've, I've been a believer since I was about five years old, accepted Jesus on the stairs of our uh, house on uh, Great Lakes Naval Base in Chicago, in Illinois. My wife accepted Christ as a 36-year-old woman. What I have lived for 
over, oh my goodness, over half a century. Wow. <laughs> That's just kind of walking yourself down into a trap, you know what I mean? The way I've lived for over half a century is very new to her. I need to help her celebrate her progress. And you need to celebrate the progress of your brother or sister. You need to celebrate the progress of your children. You need to celebrate the progress of your husband or wife. You need to do that. Listen, dysfunction kills. Dysfunction destroys. Dysfunction tears down. I've had enough of dysfunction. We should have had enough of dysfunction. It's time, church, it's time, Christian, it's time, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, it's time to stand up and fight for our walks with the Lord and become functional for him. Stop being frozen like a deer in the headlights. Learn how to live, learn how to celebrate, learn how to enjoy, even in this season of great stress and anxiety. Learn how to celebrate Jesus and become functional for his kingdom. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of being in your house. God, the worship was great this morning. Lord, I thank you for those who were able to be out. Father, we have many people who are under the weather, non-COVID sick right now, Lord. I pray that you'll touch their bodies and give them healing. But Father, I pray more importantly that you will reach into our hearts and our lives and bring conviction on our souls. God, that's something that we have forgotten how to do nowadays in the church. We just wanted to go along to get along. Father, we need to learn what conviction is all about. And I pray that you'll convict, convict us of our sin and our failures and our shortcomings and bring us to a place of repentance so that we can begin the growth process with you. Father, I pray that you'll bless each and every one of us that were here today, those who watched us on Facebook. Lord, I pray that you'll bless the next service. And I pray that all will be done for your honor and for your glory. In your precious name, we pray and ask all these things. Amen.